Scripture reading this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, I'll be reading verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you, Steve. I hate my job. I hate the traffic. I hate the cold weather. I hate pollen. I hate the music in the grocery stores. I hate the packaging of the big bottle of mild salsa from Trader Joe's. You just can't get the top off. I hate it. We love to complain, don't we? We love to complain about our marriage. We love to complain that our husbands are insensitive. We love to complain that our wives are irrational. We love to complain about the Democrats. We love to complain about the Republicans. We love to complain about the millennials. We love to complain about the elderly. We love to complain about our mother-in-law. We love to complain about our neighbors. We love to complain. It's almost like complaining is a primal instinct. We used to have two dogs, Cole and Joey, and when we would take them outside, we had to put them on leashes, right? Because if they weren't on a leash, then when they would go outside, the moment that they smelled an animal, it's not like they thought, what am I going to do in this moment, right? There's there's no thinking going on, just bam, just this this primal instinct, almost a pre- cognitive instinct just drives them ahead. I, I, remember, I remember one time, I've shared this story before, it's ridiculous. Uh, we were walking the dogs out in the back here. It was a snowy day. There was snow all over the back lawn. We had them out. I had Cole on a leash, and Laura had Joey on a leash, and we're out, and, and, and we had stopped. I think one of them was going to the bathroom, which is why we took him out there, right? And we're just kind of sitting there um, talking, and while Laura and I are talking, apparently Cole smelled something. And so immediately, just bam, he takes off. Now, I I didn't notice this. I didn't realize that he had smelled this animal. I didn't realize that he had gone from zero to 60 in 0.1 seconds. And so I didn't realize this while I was holding his leash. And I'm not a big guy. Cole's kind of a big dog. I'm talking to my wife. Here's what I'm I'm talking to my wife one moment, and the next moment, I'm being dragged across the backyard by my dog. Primal instinct. I think that complaining is like a primal instinct for some of us, isn't it? I mean, we, we don't even think about it. It's just instinctually we complain. We, we, we are professional complainers. Thought about that? If you, could, if you could get paid to complain, you know, like, um, like on Spotify or Apple Music, the way it works is every time somebody plays an artist's song, 
they get paid, or at least their record company gets paid, right? So, so they, they, the song gets played from Spotify. Every time a song gets played, they get paid a small, small uh, a fee. Imagine if every time you complained, a little bit of money showed up in your bank account. Imagine how wealthy most of us would be. We are professional complainers. The problem is, Complaining is very destructive. Complaining can cause you to lose your job. I remember reading on Facebook, a a woman posted on Facebook a complaint about what a lousy tip she got. And immediately her boss fired her. Someone else took it to the next level. They complained on Facebook about their boss, forgetting that they'd just become friends with their boss on Facebook. And so uh, the boss responded on Facebook, uh, something to the effect of, well, we just became friends, but not anymore, you're fired. Complaining can be destructive. It can cause you to lose your job. Complaining can destroy a marriage. You you know, I, I think that one of the things that happens in marriage or can happen is that complaining we realize that complaining doesn't doesn't work well for us. So complaining moves to sarcasm sort of step removed. Sarcasm kind of can become a, a way of sort of masking our complaints. And not always. Look, I like sarcasm. Sarcasm's kind of fun. Sometimes I feel like when I get to know somebody, I don't really know if we're good friends yet until we start making fun of each other, right? So there, there can be a, a healthy place for it, kind of a fun place, but it's really easy for it to turn into something very destructive. What seems like, ha, ha, ha just a joke was that really a joke? Just slowly over time. I, I remember I, I have a friend who's a, a pastor, and we served together about 20 years ago. And his house was so much fun to go to. And people, I would always go to his house, hang out at his house. And the entertainment wasn't, I mean, we played video games, you know, watched movies, whatever. But the real entertainment was just watching him and his wife. Because they just made fun of each other, back and forth, back and forth. Everybody's laughing, ha, 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 ha. Right? Uh, Ten years later... He tells me, yeah, we had to completely stop sarcasm because we were about to get a divorce. We had to stop it entirely. Sarcasm can be a way to kind of mask complaints, hide our complaints, and complaining can destroy a marriage. Complaining can destroy a church. That's what Paul's actually getting at here in Philippians when he says, therefore, dear friends, Uh, or he says, do everything, verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. He's writing this, what what was just read to you, was a section from a letter that he wrote to a church in the town of Philippi in Asia Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing this letter to this church, a church that he had started, he had planted it, he had helped to build it up, and he's worried about division in the church, he's worried about conflict, and he realizes that one of the the biggest ways to chip away at unity is through complaining and arguing. The easiest way to destroy a church is complaining and and arguing. And and so, you know, actually one of the things we want to kind of probably want to note about this, the fact that he's having to address this in the church in Philippi should remind us that, listen, you're always, no church is ever going to be perfect. 
There's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be disagreements. The fact that he's having to address the fact that there's complaining and arguing in the church at Philippi is a reminder to us that there's always going to be problems in a church. The reason why I say this is because it's somewhat fashionable these days to say, hey, you know what? We need to, we need to get back to the early church. We need to get back to the way the early church did things. You know, Christendom just messed everything up. And, and there's some truth to that. There's a lot that we could learn about the early church, but we shouldn't romanticize what was going on in the early church. If you read your Bible with any kind of just simple clarity, you'll realize they were messed up. They had all kinds of problems. They had all kinds of challenges. So just the fact that he's having to address this is because he knows that it's a problem. And this, this should just remind us, listen, no matter where you have been in the past, maybe you've been to a church, you've been burned before, you've been hurt. I just, I can guarantee if you come here long enough, it's going to happen again. It just will. We don't want it to happen. But it will, because there is no such thing as a perfect church. As You know, you've probably heard the joke. If you find a perfect church, don't join it, because you'll mess it up. So Paul's addressing this in the early church, and this is a reminder that even the early church didn't have everything figured out. And he's reminding them that complaining and arguing can chip away at the unity of a church. Now, here's what I want us to see, and what I believe will emerge out of this passage is simply this. Complaining is the opposite of thanksgiving. In many ways, complaining is the opposite of thanksgiving. Today we're continuing or finishing up a series that we began three weeks ago on thankfulness. And the whole point of this series is to encourage one another to cultivate thankfulness in our lives. We saw three weeks ago that thankfulness is the path to joy. You want to find joy in your life? Just become a ridiculously thankful person. That's what we saw three weeks ago. Last week, we, looked, we focused more on, well, what, what are we thankful for? The object of our thankfulness, we are thankful to God, and we are thankful for his creation, for the things that he has given us. That's what we looked at last week. And today, as we kind of finish out this series, the week before Thanksgiving, I want to just kind of put it this way. One way of understanding thankfulness is to understand that its opposite is complaining, right? So throughout this series, again, I want to encourage you um, in the back, uh, when you go out to get some coffee, we have the Thanksgiving tree up. It will be up until our Thanksgiving service on Wednesday, which again, we encourage you to come. All part of this series on cultivating thankfulness, Wednesday night, 7 p.m., would love for you to come. Would be very thankful if you came to that service. Uh, That would be great. But we have this tree out there that is to remind us about thankfulness. And I still encourage you, what you can do is there are paper leaves that you can write on it things that you're thankful for and tape it to the tree. Just that act, I believe, can help to uh, concretize thankfulness in our hearts. So that's there for you to avail yourself of. Of, and that's, that's what we're doing. This whole series is about thankfulness. And I want us to see again that complaining is the opposite of thankfulness. Now, here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. So I, I could just say, look, folks, if you want to be thankful, just stop complaining. Right? Just stop. All right. Let's sing a song and get out of here. We're good to go. Oh, that's it? I just have to stop complaining? Wow. That's brilliant. Thank you, Pastor. What's the problem? The problem is, I've already said, complaining is a primal instinct. 
Telling you, telling me to stop complaining would be like telling my, my dog, Cole, to stop chasing after deer when he goes outside. It's so instinctual. It's so built into us. So if we're going to find a way to get at this problem of complaining, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. And this passage offers us a tremendous amount that can help us in understanding what complaining is all about. Now, to go a little bit deeper into this issue, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to look at the people of Israel at a particular time in their history. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to the book of Exodus. We were there. We did a series on that recently, so some of it will be familiar if you were here for that series. We're going to go back to the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at the people of Israel when they've just come out of slavery in Egypt, and we're going to discover that they, this is a time when they really should be thankful, but instead they're complaining. Now, why am I going to that passage? Did I just decide to go there? No, actually, it seems that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the, the book of Philippians, which was just read, which we're looking at today, that he had the story of the people of Israel in mind when he wrote this. And the clue that we get that he has them in mind is the particular language that he uses here. He says in verse 14 and 15, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. It's interesting, that phrase, a crooked and depraved generation, is a phrase that you find in the scripture often referring to the people of Israel. Right when they came out, of Egypt, right when they came out from their opposition with the Pharaoh, that generation was referred to as the crooked and depraved generation. And what he's saying is, don't be like them. So let's go back and let's see, because let's take a look here. This is in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to look at what happened with the people of Israel, and hopefully in looking at this, we'll get a little bit of an insight into complaining and into thankfulness. Now, Let me give you a little background again. So the people of Israel, they've been in slavery for 400 years. They are delivered out of slavery. They come through the Red Sea. There's this tremendous scene where they they are up against the Red Sea. They're up against the army of Egypt, and God miraculously opens up the Red Sea, allows them to go through. When the Pharaoh's army comes through the Red Sea, then the waters come and collapse on them. God defeats the Egyptian army, so that the Israelites can get out of slavery. That's chapter 14. So they've just had this unbelievable experience, this unbelievable salvific experience, this experience that would become paradigmatic for the people of Israel. It was an experience which would define them as a people. We are the people that were delivered through the Red Sea. We are the people who were delivered out of slavery, right? So this is a big deal, such a big deal that in chapter 15, we just get a song, almost an entire chapter devoted to praising God, thanking God for his deliverance in their lives. Now, here's what's interesting. That's chapter 15. In chapter 16... They're already complaining. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to him, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, Moses, 
have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Come on, doesn't that sound like you and me? Just already complaining. They've just been delivered, and they're, they're already complaining. And what I think is interesting to notice here, and it's important for us to see here now, is in this passage, when they're complaining, I want you to notice they're complaining against Moses. Okay, that's where this complaint is lodged in. Like, Moses, you're the one that brought us out of here. Why'd you do this? Why'd you bring that? They're complaining against Moses. Now, what's interesting is how Moses responds in verses 6 through 8. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Now here I think a very interesting principle emerges here. Generally speaking, when we complain about other people, we're actually complaining about God. When we complain about other people, we're actually complaining about God. If we believe in the God of the Bible, the God who, as we sang earlier, spoke all of creation into existence, if we believe that somehow, mysteriously, God is sovereign over all things, there is a sense in which when we complain about others, we are actually complaining about God. We notice this here in Romans 13. We discover that when we complain about the government, we are actually complaining about God. This is Romans chapter 13. That's what it says here. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. It's saying God is mysteriously sovereign over government. You should should submit to the government. You You should seek to follow the laws of government. You shouldn't complain against the government because mysteriously God is sovereign over all of that. Now, of course, it's a little bit more complicated. In fact, Paul's own life, Paul's own story betrays it's not quite that simple. Paul isn't here suggesting that there is never a time in human history when we should not stand against what our government is doing. There is never, he's not suggesting there's no place for civil disobedience along those lines. I mean, one of the things we've got to realize is that most of the time when Paul writes a letter, uh, he's writing it from prison. Okay, so Paul himself tended to get in trouble with the authorities, right? And, and even here, what's interesting, right here, he's telling them to submit to the governing authorities. But the book of Romans is actually um, one of the most anti-imperial pieces of literature at that time. Because at that point, what he, the entire book of Romans is drawing out this point that, you know what? The emperor, who was seen as divine in the Roman Empire, is not. He's not really Lord Jesus is Lord over all things. So the book of Romans actually challenges the authority of the Roman Empire to its core. So I'm not saying that there's no place for us to respond when government operates in ways that go against what God would want. But there needs to see there's this basic principle here 
that, that we just shouldn't be complainers. There's a difference between thoughtfully engaging in engaging in matters, seeking to bring shalom, seeking to make things better, and just complaining. There's a difference, and I think we need to notice that. I mean, sometimes I just feel like when I go on Facebook and I see people complaining, and, and you know, this has happened under the Obama administration or the Trump administration. I mean, it's, it's just complaining. Oftentimes, it's really not even very thoughtful. It's not really even thought through. It's just complaints about governing officials or politicians, and this, I think, is what Paul is, is getting at here, and then what we discover in Philippians is this. When we just complain, we're actually complaining against God because somehow in the mystery of his providence, he has orchestrated all of this. Complaining against others is complaining against God. Complaining against your boss. Complaining against your boss is actually complaining against God. Listen to this in the book of Colossians. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Right Now, just as a side note here, Paul is not endorsing slavery. Actually, once again, when you look at the writings of Paul as a whole, they actually contributed significantly to the undermining of slavery in the Roman Empire. So so Paul is, is not for slavery. He's against slavery, but he's also a pragmatist writing to a church in a particular situation, just trying to help them make it through their daily lives. And he's saying, look, where you are right now, just Realize that even serving your slave master, in a mysterious sense, you're working for God because he is sovereign over all things. And Paul's saying, so, so don't complain against them, right? That's what we can pull out. Don't just complain. Even if it's a terrible situation. Here he's talking about slavery. It's hard to imagine a more difficult situation than that. And even there he's saying, you know what? Think of yourself as serving the Lord. And so when you complain against them, you're complaining against God. Now, once again... Not saying, I'm not saying that if you're in a difficult work environment that you shouldn't or don't have the right to try to find other work or try to work it out. But there's, there's a difference, right, between thoughtfully and respectfully dealing with those issues and just complaining. When we complain against others, we're actually complaining against God. He goes on in, in verse 20, he talks about children obeying your parents because in doing so, you're obeying the Lord. It's the same kind of thing. We see this over and over again. With whoever is over you, when you complain about it, you're actually complaining against God. And since this is true, since complaining against others is really complaining against God, here's what complaining reveals. It reveals a lack of faith. When we just complain, it reveals a lack of faith. Right, and that's exactly what we discover with the people of Israel going back to them coming out of slavery in Egypt, coming out into the wilderness, and they're complaining. What's going on there? It's a lack of faith. And again, notice how quickly they do this. Notice how quickly they lose their faith in God. I mean, it's, it's like the, the, the salt from the Red Sea is still in their hair. The sand from the bottom of the Red Sea is still on their sandals, and they've already lost faith. 
Aren't we like that? Are we no different than that? How quick are we to lose faith and in so doing become complainers? We sang the hymn, Come Thou Fount, to start off this service, and I love that. It's probably one of my favorite songs of all time, and there's that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I always have us sing it twice. I always tag it at the end. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're so prone to lose Now, as we move through this story, as we see what happens with the people of Israel, it's interesting what we discover here. Here's what we discover. The Israelites are complaining, complaining, complaining. But there's something we need to see that's very subtle that emerges in this text here, in Exodus 16. When God shows up, the complaining stops. When God shows up, the complaining stops. What we discover in in, in chapter 16, the story of the people of Israel in Exodus, is that they're complaining. There's this kind of this cycle where they complain, God provides. They complain, God provides. And then what we discover here is in verse 10, verse 10, it says this. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Now, what's really interesting is that from that verse on, we don't see any more complaining. At least not for a while. They do go back to complaining. But but for a while, they just stop complaining. Because when the presence of God is with you, you will stop complaining. I think we see the same thing in this passage in the book of Philippians. Let's take a look at this here again. This is in Philippians chapter 2. And let me just read these verses to you again to kind of get the context here. Paul says to this church at Philippi, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And here it is, do everything without complaining or arguing, arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Okay, what's going on? This is interesting here. Basically, here's what Paul's saying. That the phrase day of Christ, this is crucial here. When Paul references the day of Christ, it's shorthand for this time when Christ will return and renew all things. God will make all things new. Right? This is the heart of biblical theology is that there will come this day when God is going to make things new. And that's what he's referring to when he mentions the day of Christ. There's going to come this day when Christ is going to return and he's going to make things new. And what he's saying here is that when that happens, here's what he's getting at. He's like, I don't want to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and say, I don't know why they're complaining. I don't know why they did all that complaining. Because when God shows up, they're going to look so silly. All of their complaining is going to look ridiculous. He's like, I don't want to have to explain this. I... Uh, I don't know if the store is still there. FAO Schwartz, is it still down in the city? Okay, it's still there. All right. FAO Schwartz is like this toy store 
uh, toy store, it is, the, it is the toy store to end all toy stores. I mean, this, this store is unbelievable. It's just floor after floor of just toys. It's incredible. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like if I was going to write a children's book about the day of Christ, I would compare the coming of the day of Christ. For those whose faith is in Christ, for a children's story, I'd say it's like the coming of F.A.O. Schwartz. In fact, I remember when I was there one time, we got there, and it was closing time. We were still in there. They'd locked the doors, right, so that nobody knew could get in, but we were still in there. The doors were closed, and this little kid comes up to the door, and he grabs a hold of the doors, and, and he looked like somebody just being denied at the pearly gates. Right, so F.A.O. Schwartz, if I was going to write a book, if I was going to write a book, a children's book about the day of Christ, I would compare it to F.A.O. Schwartz. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you get in the car with your six and seven-year-old, and you're driving on the way to F.A.O. Schwartz, and they've got a couple toys in the back seat, and they're fighting. And they're arguing, and they're complaining. I want to play with the, you know, I want to play with Darth Vader. I want to, and they're arguing and fighting, and they don't realize that you're on your way Schwartz. And when you get there, they are going to look so silly. That's what Paul's saying. All our complaining and arguing is going to look really ridiculous when God shows up. But there's more here. Because Paul wants us to also see, and this is more subtle, is this. We don't have to wait for the day of Christ. Because God is already here. This comes through, it's, it's more subtle, but you need, you need to see what he's, he says here. Okay, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, just for a minute here, that's a verse that always freaks a lot of people out. Uh, work out your salvation. Oh, my gosh, the Protestant Reformation was totally wrong. Um, okay, is that saying that you've got to earn your salvation? No, because when we look at the, the word salvation in the Bible, it encompasses more, more than just that moment when you come to know Christ. It, it encompasses more than just when you are justified before God, right? So in other words, justification, salvation actually has Okay, I'll just go ahead and use the, the, the theological words that are used to describe this. Salvation can be described as co- a combination of these three concepts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is a declaration that you are right with God, that he has forgiven you and you are in right relationship with him. And you do absolutely nothing to be declared right in the eyes of God. That he just, by virtue of his grace, looks at you. And, and through faith, you turn to him and say, I need that grace. He says, you are forgiven. You are right with me. Our relationship is right. Now, and here's what's crucial, though, is that God wants us to be in relationship with him, but he also wants us to become more and more like him. And that's called sanctification. And so sanctification is something that does revolve, does, it requires us to be involved in the process. You, you've got you've to... You've got to care. You've got to put forward effort if you actually want to be changed by God. Now, of course, what's interesting is even that, even when you 
work in order for God to work in your life. Notice what he says here in verse 13. He says here, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So even all that work that you did, it all came from him anyways. All right, so that was just a little bit of an aside to explain that this is not saying that you earn your salvation. Now, what's interesting is as much ink has been spilled on that verse, that's really not what Paul's interested in talking about. What he wants us to understand here, the real point that he's getting at when he says this, is that God is already with them. So here's we got to understand the context here. When Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he's in prison. And he's writing to this church that he started. He planted this church. He discipled the people in this church. And he wants, them to, he wants to encourage them to continue to grow, to continue to become more like Christ. And what he wants them to realize is that he doesn't need them to be there for them to change. And the reason is because God is with them. They don't need him because it's God that works in them. And he's saying, God is with you. You don't need Paul. In fact, when it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's actually just kind of a shorthand way of saying work out your salvation in the presence of God. Fear and trembling is is a phrase that is used to describe what happens when the presence of God is there. So he's saying work out your salvation in the presence of God. He's saying God is with you. In John chapter 6, Jesus, Jesus, well, he has this encounter with thousands of people where he feeds them, the feeding of the 5,000, this miraculous event, which is no doubt meant to point to and parallel the time in which the Israelites were walking in the desert and God miraculously provided bread for them. And what's interesting is, let me, let me read to you, and I think, I think we have this on the screen too. I can't remember if we put this um, in the slides or not. But listen to what Jesus says to these people after he has given them, after he has fed them, this, this miraculous uh, display of power. Listen to what he says here. The people ask him, they say, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. So here referring back to exactly the passage we were looking at. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The point that he's trying to make here is, look, yeah, I just fed you a bunch of food, and I'm sure you're really happy about that. But what, is, what you need to realize is that that's just an object lesson that's pointing you to this tremendous reality that in me, God is here. The heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God is here. Beginning next week, we're going to start a new series. And the name of that series is God is Here. For four weeks, we're going to be looking at the reality of Christmas. What is Christmas all about? 
It's the announcement that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has come. God is here. My hope is that as we go through that series, it will encourage you to become more and more aware of the presence of God that is available to you now. And here's what will happen. The more you become aware of the presence of God being available to you, the more your complaining will stop. How do we stop complaining? We don't just stop. We come closer and closer to an awareness of the presence of God. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we are thankful that you have come for us. We are thankful that you have not left us here to fend for ourselves. God, you have come, you are here. God, I pray that in the coming weeks, we would become more and more aware of that presence. And as we become more and more aware of your presence, God, all of the challenges, all of the difficulties, all of the things that we complain about would just seem strangely dim. We pray this in Jesus' name.